Book Four, Chapter Four of the Life of John Ruskin by W. G. Collingwood. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Life of John Ruskin by W. G. Collingwood, Book Four, Professor and Prophet, eighteen seventy to nineteen hundred. Chapter Four, Saint George and Saint Mark. 1875 to 1877. Recording by Cheyenne Arrowsmith. In the book His Bertha of Canterbury was reading at twilight on the eve of Sir Mark, Keats might have been describing falls. Among its pages, fascinating with their golden broideries of romance and wit, perplexing with mystique vials of wrath, as well as all the seven lamps and shekinah of old and new covenants commingled there was gradually unfolded the plan of st george's work the scheme was not easy to apprehend it was essentially different from anything then known though superficially like several bankrupt utopias ruskin did not want to found a phalanstery or to imitate robert owen or the shakers that would have been practicable and useless he wanted much more he aimed at the gradual introduction of higher aims into ordinary life it giving true refinement to the lower classes true simplicity to the upper he proposed that idle hands should reclaim waste lands that healthy work and country homes should be offered to townsfolk who could come out of the gutter he asked landowners and employers to furnish opportunities for such reforms which would involve no elaborate organization nor unelastic rules simply the one thing needful the refusal of commercialism as before he scorned the idea that real good could be done by political agitation any government would work, he said, if it were an efficient government. No government was efficient unless it saw that everyone had the necessaries of life for body and soul, and that everyone earned them by some work or other. Capital, that is, the means and the material of labor, should therefore be in the hands of the government, not in the hands of individuals. This reform would result easily and necessarily from the forbidding of loans on interest personal property would still be in private hands but as it could not be invested and turned into capital it would necessarily be restricted to its actual use and great accumulation would be valueless this is of course a very sketchy statement of the groundwork of force but to most readers nowadays as comprehensible as at the time of its publication it was incomprehensible for when long after falls had been written ruskin found other writers advocating the same principles and calling themselves socialists he said that he too was a socialist but the socialists of various sects have complicated and sometimes confused their simple fundamental principles with various ways and means to which he could not agree he had his own ways and means he had his private ideals of life which he expounded along with his main doctrine 
he thought justifiably that theory was useless without practical example and so he founded st george's company in eighteen seventy seven called st george's guild as his illustration the guild grew out of his call in eighteen seventy one for adherents and by eighteen seventy five began to take definite form its objects were to set the example of a common capital as opposed to a national debt and of cooperative labour as opposed to competitive struggle for life each member was required to do some work for his living without too strict limits as to the kind and to practise certain percepts of religion and morality broad enough for general acceptance he was also required to obey the authority of the guild and to contribute a tithe of his income to a common fund for various objects these objects were first to buy land for the agricultural members to cultivate paying their rent not to the other members but to the company not refusing machinery but preferring manual labour next to buy mills and factories to be likewise owned by the guild and worked by members using water-power in preference to steam steam at first not forbidden and making the lives of the people employed as well spent as might be with their fair wage healthy work and so forth the loss on starting was to be made up from the guild store but it was anticipated that the honesty of the goods turned out would ultimately make such enterprise pay even in a commercial world then for the people employed and their families there would be places of recreation and instruction supplied by the guild and intended to give the agricultural labourer or mill-hand trained from infancy in guild schools some insights into literature science and art and the tastes which his easy position would leave him free to cultivate so far the plan was simple it was not a colony but merely the working of existing industries in a certain way anticipating further development of the scheme ruskin looked forward to a guild coinage as pretty as the florentines had a costume as becoming as the swiss and other platonically devised details which were not the essentials of the proposal and never came into operation but some of his plans were actually realized the chief objects of st george come under three heads as we have just noticed agricultural industrial and educational the actual schools would not be needed until the farms and the mills had been so far established as to secure a permanent attendance but meanwhile provision was being made for them both in literature and in art the bibliotheca pastorum was to be a comprehensive little library far less than the one hundred books of the Mall gazette and yet bringing before the st george's workman standard and serious writing of all times it was to include in separate volumes the books of moses and psalms of david and the revelation of st george of greek the economist of xenophon and hesiod which ruskin undertook to translate into prose of latin the first two georgics and sixth aeneid of virgil in gawain douglas translation 
Dante, Chaucer, excluding the Canterbury Tales, but including the Romance of the Rose. Godolph's Auric the Farmer, from the French version which Ruskin had loved ever since his father used to read it him on the first tours in Switzerland, and an early English history by an Oxford friend. Later were published Sir Philip Sidney's Sorter and Ruskin's own biography of Sir Herbert Edward under the title of A Knight's Faith. These books were for the home library. Reference works were bought to be deposited in central libraries along with objects of art and science. It was not intended to keep the guild property centralized, but rather to spread it as its other work was spread broadcast a number of books and other objects were bought with the guild money and lent or given to various schools and colleges and institutions where work akin to the objects of the guild was being done but for the time ruskin fixed upon sheffield as the place of his first guild museum being the home of the typical english industry central to all parts of england near beautiful hill country and yet not far from a number of manufacturing towns in which if st george's work went on supporters and recruits might be found the people of sheffield were already in eighteen seventy five building a museum of their own and naturally thought that the two might be conveniently worked together but that was not at all what ruskin wished not only was his museum to be primarily the storehouse of the guild rather than one among many means of popular education but the objects which he intended to place there were not such as the public expected to see he had no interest in a vast accumulation of articles of all kinds he wanted to provide for his friend's common treasury a few definitely valuable and interesting examples interesting to the sort of people that he hoped would join the guild or be bred up in it and valuable according to his own standard and experience in september eighteen seventy five ruskin stayed a couple of days at sheffield to inspect a cottage at walkley in the outskirts of the town and to make arrangements for founding the museum humbly to begin with but hoping for speedy increase he engaged as curator at a salary of forty pounds a year and free lodging on the premises his former pupil at a working-man's college henry swan who had done occasional work for him in drawing and engraving swan was a quaker and a remarkable man in his way enthusiastic in his new vocation and interested in the social questions which were being discussed in falls under his care the museum remained at walkley accumulating material in a tiny and hardly accessible cottage being so to speak in embryo until the way should be clear for its removal or enlargement which took place in eighteen ninety when ruskin came back on his posting tour of april eighteen seventy six he stayed again at sheffield to meet a few friends of swans secularists unitarians and quakers who professed communism they had an interview reported in the sheffield daily telegraph april twenty eighth eighteen seventy six which brought out rather curiously the points of difference between their opinions and his 
they refused to join the guild because they would not promise obedience and help in its objects. Ruskin, however, was willing to advance theirs. A few weeks afterwards, he invited them to choose a piece of ground for their communist experiment. They chose a farm of over thirteen acres at Abbeydale, which the guild bought in eighteen seventy-seven at a cost of two thousand two hundred and eighty-seven pounds sixteen shillings six pences for their use. The communists agreeing to pay the money back in instalments without interest by the end of seven years, when a farm should be their own. When it was actually in their hands. They found that they knew nothing of farming, and besides, were making money at trades they did not really care to abandon. They engaged a man to work the farm for them, and then another. They were told that the land they had chosen was, for farming purposes, worthless. Their capital ran short, and they tried to make money by keeping a tea garden. The original proposer of the scheme wrote to Ruskin, who sent one hundred pounds. The others returned the money. Ruskin declined to take it back and began to perceive that the communists were trifling. They had made no attempt to found the sort of community they had talked about. Neither their plans nor his were being carried out. So when the original proposer and a friend of his name, Riley, approached Ruskin again, they found little difficulty in persuading him to try them as managers. The rest, finding themselves turned out by Riley, vainly demanded explanations from Ruskin, who then was drifting into his first attack of brain fever. So they declined further connection with the farm. The guild accepted their resignation and undertook, for the time, nothing more than to get the land into good condition again. This was not the only land held by the St George's Guild. It acquired the acre of ground on which the Sheffield Museum stood, and a cottage with a couple of acres near Scarborough. Two acres of rock and moor at Barmouth had been given by Mrs. Talbot in 1872. And in 1877, Mr. George Baker, then Mayor of Birmingham, gave twenty acres of woodland at Bewley in Worcestershire, to which at one time Mr. Ruskin thought of moving the museum before the present building was found for it by the Sheffield Corporation at Meersbrook Park. On the resignation of the original trustees in 1877. Mr. Q. Talbot and Mr. Baker were offered a trust, and on the death of Mr. Talbot, the trust was accepted by Mr. John Henry Chamberlain. After he died, it was taken by Mr. George Thompson of Huddersfield, whose woollen mills transformed into a cooperative concern, though not directly in connection with the guild. Have given a widely known example of the working of principles advocated in force. In the middle of eighteen seventy-six, Egbert Ridings, the auditor of the accounts, which, in accordance with his principles of glass pockets, 
Ruskin published in force proposed to start a homespun woolen industry at Lexi in the Isle of Man, where the old women who formerly spun with the wheel had been driven by failure of custom to work in the mines. The guild built him a watermill, and in a few years the demand for a pure, rough, durable cloth created by this and kindred attempt justified the enterprise. Ruskin set the example and had his own grey clothes made of laxy stuffs, whose chief drawback was that they never worn out. A little later, a similar work was done with even greater success by Mr. Albert Fleming, another member of the guild, who introduced old-fashioned spinning and hand-loom weaving at Longdale. The story of Ruskin's posting tour was told many years afterwards. At the opening of the new Sheffield Museum by Mr. Arthur Seven, a famous raconteur, whose description of the adventures of their cruise upon wheels includes so bright a picture of Ruskin that I must use his words as they were reported on the occasion in a magazine, Eagdrasil. With the professor who disliked railways very much, it was not a question of travelling by rail. He said. I will take you in a carriage and with horses, and we will drive the whole way from London to the north of England. And I will not only do that, but I will do the best in my power to get a postilion to ride, and we will go quite in the old-fashioned way. The professor went so far that he actually built a carriage for this drive. It was a regular posting carriage with good strong wheels, a place behind for the luggage, and cunning drawers inside it for all kinds of things that we might require on the journey. We started off one fine morning from London, I must say without a postilion. But、uh, when we arrived at the next town, about twenty miles off, having telegraphed beforehand and that we were coming, there was a. Gorgeous postilion, ready with the fresh horses, and we started off in the right style, according to the professor's wishes. After many pleasant days of travelling, we at last arrived at Sheffield, and I well remember that we created no small sensation as we clattered up to the old posting inn. I think it was the King's Head. We stayed a few days. And visited the old museum at Walkley, and I remember the look of regret on the professor's face when he saw how cramped the space was there for the things he had to show. However, with his usual kindliness, he did not say much about it at the time, and he did not complain of the considerable amount of room it was necessary for the curator and his family to take up in that place. He stayed about two days, looking at the beautiful country, and I am glad to say there was a good deal still left. And then the professor gave orders that the carriage should be got ready to take us on our journey, and that a postilion should be forthcoming, if possible. I remember leaving the luncheon table and going outside to see if the necessary arrangements were complete. Sure enough, there was the carriage at the door. And a still more gorgeous postilion than any we had had so far on our journey. 
His riding breeches were of the tightest and widest I ever saw. His horses were an admirable pair and looked like going. A very large crowd had assembled outside the inn to see what extraordinary kind of mortals could be going to travel in such a way. I went to the room where the professor was still at luncheon and told him that everything was ready, but that there was a very large crowd at the door. He seemed rather amused, and I said, "You know, professor, I really don't know what the people expect and whether it is a bride and bridegroom or what." He said, "Well, Arthur, you and John shall play at being bride and bridegroom inside a carriage, and I will get on the box." He got Mrs. Seven on his arm and had to hold her pretty tightly as he left the door, because when she saw the crowd outside, she tried to beat a retreat. At last, he got her into the carriage. I was put in afterwards. And he jumped up on the box. The crowd closed in and looked at us as if we were sort of a menagerie. I was much amused when I thought how little these eager people knew that the real attraction was on the box. I felt inclined to put my head out of the window and say, "My good people, there is the man you should look at, not us." I did not like to do so, and the professor gave the word to be off. The postilion cracked his whip, and we went off in grand style amidst the cheers of the crowd. On one of these posting excursions, they came to Hardraw. Mrs. Alfred Hunt tells the story in her edition of Turner's Richmondshire. Mr. Seven's account is somewhat different. After examining the fall, Mrs. Seven and Mr. Ruskin left Mr. Seven to sketch, and went away to Halls to order their tea. When they were gone, a man who had been standing by came up and asked if that were Professor Ruskin. "Yes," said Mr. Seven. "It was. He is very fond of the fall, and much puzzled to know why the edge of the cliff is not worn away by the water." As he expected to find it after so many years, oh," said the other, "there are twelve feet of masonry up there to protect the rock. I'm a native of the place and know all about it." I wish," said Mister Seven absently as he went on drawing. Mister Ruskin knew that he would be so interested, and a stranger ran off. When a sketcher came in to tea, he felt there was something wrong. You are in for it," said his wife. "Let us look at his sketch first," said Mister Ruskin. And luckily, it was a very good one. By and by, it all came out how the Yorkshireman had caught the professor and eagerly described the horrible vandalism, receiving in reply some very emphatic language. Upon which he took off his hat and bowed low. "But, sir," he faltered. The gentleman up there said I was to tell you, and you would be so interested. The professor, suddenly mollified, took off his hat in turn and apologized for his reception of the news. But said he, "I shall never care for Hardraw Waterfall again." The professor said, "Mr. Seven." 
dislikes railways very much, and on his arrival at Brentwood after that posting journey, he wrote a preface to a protest against the extension of railways in the Lake District by Mr. Robert Somerville. Ruskin's dislike of railways has been the text of a great deal of misrepresentation, and his use of them at all has been often quoted as an inconsistency. As a matter of fact, he never objected to main lines of railway communication, but he strongly objected, in common with a vast number of people, to the introduction of railways into districts whose chief interest is in their scenery, especially where, as in the English Lake District, the scenery is in miniature, easily spoiled by embankments and the viaducts, and by the rows of ugly buildings which usually grow up round a station, and where the beauty of the landscape can only be felt in quiet walks or drive through it. Many years later, after he had said all he had to say on the subject again and again, and was on the brink of one of his illnesses, he wrote in violent language to a correspondent who tried to draw him on the subject of another proposed railway to Embleside. But his real opinions were simple enough and consistent with a practicable scheme of life. In August 1876, he left England for Italy. He travelled alone, accompanied only by his new servant Baxter, who had lately taken the place vacated by Crawley, Mr. Ruskin's former valet of twenty years' service. He crossed the Simplon to Venice, where he was welcomed by an old friend, Rawdon Brown, and a new friend, Professor C. H. Moore of Harvard. He met two Oxford pupils, Mr. J. Reddy Anderson, whom he set to work on Carpaccio, and Mr. Whitehead. So much nicer they all are, he wrote in a private letter, than I was at their age. Also his pupil, Mr. Bunny, at work on copies of pictures and records of architecture, the legacy of Sir Mark to St. George. Two young artists were brought into his circle during that winter both venetians and both singularly interesting men giacomo boni now a celebrated antiquary then capo d'obela of the ducal palace and doing his best to preserve instead of restoring the ancient sculptures and angelo alessandri a painter of more than usual seriousness of aim and sympathy with the fine qualities of the old masters Ruskin had been engaged on a manual of drawing for his Oxford schools, which he now meant to complete in two parts, the laws of Fesole, teaching the principles of Florentine draughtsmanship, and the laws of Rivo Alto, about Venetian colour. Passages for this second part were written, but he found himself so deeply interested in the evolution of Venetian art, and in tracing the spirit of the people, as shown by the mythology illustrated in the pictures and sculptures, that his practical manual became a sketch of art history, some marks rest as a sort of companion to mornings in Florence, which he had been working at during his last visit to Italy. His intention was to supersede the stones of Venice by a smaller book, 
giving more prominence to the ethical side of history, which should illustrate Carpaccio as the most important figure of the transition period, and do away with the exclusive Protestantism of his earlier work. He set himself to this task with Tintoret's motto, Zampli si fai mali maggiore, and worked with feverish energy recording his progress in letters home thirteen november i never was yet in my life in such a state of hopeless confusion of letters drawings and work chiefly because of course when one is old one's done work seems all to tumble in upon one and wants rearranging and everything brings a thousand old as well as new thoughts my head seems less capable of accounts every year i can't fix my mind on a sum in addition it goes off between seven and nine into a speculation on the seven deadly sins or the nine muses my table is heaped with unanswered letters the manuscripts of four or five different books at six or seven different parts of each sketches getting rubbed out others getting smudged in parcels from mr brown unopened parcels for mr moore unsent my ink standing one place too probably upset my pen in another my paper under a pile of books and my last carefully written note thrown into the waste paper basket three december i am having nasty foggy weather just now but it's better than fog in london and i'm really resting a little and trying not to be so jealous of the flying days i've a most comfy room at the grand hotel i've gone out of the very expensive one and only pay twelve francs a day and i've two windows one with open balcony and the other covered in with glass it spoils the look of the window dreadfully but gives me a view right away to lido and of the whole sunrise then the bed is curtained off from rest of room like that sketch of window and room with fine flourishing white and gold pillars and the black place is where one goes out of the room beside the bed nine december my hope to send home a sketch or two which will show i'm not quite losing my head yet i must show at oxford some reason for my staying so long in venice besides studies in the chapel of st george he copied carpaccio's dream of st ursula which was taken down it had been skied at the academy until then and placed in the sculpture gallery and belaboured to produce a facsimile twenty four december now i do think son ursula's lips are coming pretty and her eyelids but oh me her hair tony mr brown's gondolia says she's all right and he's a grave and close-looking judge you know christmas day was a crisis in his life he was attacked by illness severe pain 
followed by a dreamy state in which the vividly realized presence of St. Ursula mingled with memories of his dead lady, whose spirit had been shown him a year before by a medium met at a country house. Since then he had watched eagerly for evidences of another life, and a sense of its conceivability grew upon him, in spite of the doubts which he had entertained of the immortality of the soul. At last, after a year's earnest desire for some such assurance, it seemed to come to him what others call coincidences and accidents and states of mind flashed for him into importance. Times and seasons, names and symbols took a vivid meaning. His intense despondency changed for a while into a singular happiness. It seemed a renewed health and strength, and instead of despair, he rejoiced in the conviction of guarding providences and helpful inferences. Readers of force had traced for some years back the reawakening of a religious tongue, now culminating in a pronounced mysticism which they could not understand, and in a recantation of the sceptical judgments of his middle period. He found now new excellences in the early christian painting he depreciated turner and tintoret and denounced the frivolous art of the day he searched the bible more diligently than ever for its hidden meanings and in proportion as he felt its inspiration he recoiled from the conclusions of modern science and wrapped the prophet's mantle more closely round him as he denounced with growing fervour the crimes of our unbelieving age. End of Book Four, Chapter Four. Recording by Cheyenne Arrowsmith.